Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And let me read to you the first few verses. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and so afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Then Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we embark on this momentous narrative about the flood, the great flood, help us to open our eyes and our hearts to hear what the Spirit of God would have for us, each one of us. Lord, may we be encouraged and challenged and warned. For even as Jesus said, it will be as in the days of Noah when the Son of Man comes again. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Three full chapters, Lord. Help us to get our arms and our minds and our hearts wrapped around them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're about to begin a journey into the most cataclysmic event to ever happen on earth, the great flood. The narrative of this event is found in Genesis 6 through 9. Three complete chapters are given to it. And contrary to many contemporary pundits that make light of Noah and the flood, comedians that make jokes about it, and and pseudoscientists promoting their erroneous theories, And the biblical illiteracy of postmodern people being completely ignorant of the flood, thinking everything in the Bible is just a myth, the great flood actually did take place. And the evidence of it are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. But sin blinds the minds of people, and they don't want to think about such things. From the Grand Canyon geological layers to almost every culture in the world, having accounts of a great flood in their histories, the world is not unaware. And in order to deny it, they have to willfully refuse all the evidence for it. Although I'm not going to go and spend all my time calling up the many evidences for the flood. I'll let Ken Ham and the guys at uh, Answers for Genesis and the uh, Creation Research Institute CRI and others that are actual creation scientists and geologists do that for us. I will touch on a few of these things. 
And if you're interested in more information of this most amazing event, I would advise you to go to first Jay Siegert's website. It's called thestartingpointproject.com, thestartingpointproject.com. And you can sign up. It's, it's a free sign-up. And you can get all of his PowerPoint presentations and his explanation of them on all sorts of things to do with creation and, of course, the flood. Uh, that is excellent resource material. Of course, AnswersInGenesis.com is also another great resource. Institute for Creation Research, that's at ICR.org, is another source. And not to mention the some, uh, that there are some very interesting uh, movies on Amazon Prime. Uh, one I would suggest is, is Genesis History with Dell Taggart. Excellent stuff. And if you have an uh, Amazon account, it's free. So there's, there's others uh, about Noah and about creation that are really quite solid. So there's no end of information out there if you'd like to see them, and very well done. Now, it's impossible to overstate how important a flood account is for us to get our arms around as believers because it is a watershed issue, pun intended. It is a watershed issue. Why? Well, because the real issue that we face in this story is one of moral accountability. That's really the bottom line of the account of the flood. To dismiss the flood and the implications of God exercising sovereign control over his creation, including us as humans, and judging them, as Genesis 6, 5 says, then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, which only led him to then declare he was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart so that he said, I will blot man out whom I have created. He has every right to do that as a creator God. All but presupposes that God is sovereign and has as his prerogative the fate of his creation in his hand to do as he determines. And that brings moral accountability front and center. You see, this is the unspoken reason that there's a rejection of the flood and of the Bible and a rejection of God, which is so prevalent today everywhere in many, many cultures, especially in Western cultures. And it's far easier to believe in evolution and live with a materialistic worldview than a biblical one. Why? Why? Well, because if there is no God, then there is no judgment. There is no moral accountability. You can do whatsoever you wish. But there is a God. And he is the creator. And he is now declaring to men that people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead, Jesus Christ. It's not that there lacks information about this. It's very bold and very clear. It's that sin blinds. And the love of sin blinds men's eyes from seeing all of the warnings and all of the truths that are available to them. 
So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at this amazing narrative and see some background information. We're going to address the cause of the flood and look at a man named Noah, not, not Somerville, but another. We're going to look at the event of the flood and then the aftermath, what, what happened afterwards. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take this in hand and study through it. And it'll take a couple of weeks. It's three chapters. So I'd like to talk first about just the date and the background of the flood. It's estimated that the narrative takes place ten generations after the first couple were driven from the garden. That's at least fifteen to sixteen hundred years from the time when Adam and Eve were uh, driven out of the Garden of Eden. We get the ten generations from Genesis chapter four which conveniently records them for us. If you want to turn to Genesis, excuse me, chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, just take a quick look at this. In verse 3, we have the first generation, Adam. He lived 130 years and became the father and son of his own likeness, according to the image, and he named him Seth. Seth is the second one in verse 6. The third one is Enosh in verse 9. The fourth generation is Canaan in verse 12. The 15th, or excuse me, the fifth is in verse 15, Mahalalel, the funnest name in the whole Bible to say. Just rolls off your tongue, Mahalalel. You feel like you can almost speak Hebrew, Mahalalel, okay? So the sixth is Jared in verse 18. The seventh is uh, Enoch in verse 21. And he walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 uh, years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Um, It's understood by most Bible scholars, if not all, that he did not die. He was taken up into heaven without death. Verse 25 shows Methuselah, he's the uh, eighth, and then the ninth is Lamech, and he's in verse 28, and the tenth is Noah, and that's where we are with Noah, the tenth. Fueled by long lifespans and the population of the earth grew rapidly, that's not enough time to, uh, it's enough time to birth an awful lot of people. People were living like 900 years. And I don't think they had one or two children in that span of time. And one man estimated the population of the earth in Dea's notes like this. He says this, Families were large and lives were long. If we use a very conservative formula of six children for each family, an average generation of 100 years, and a lifespan of 500 years, there would have been over 235 million people alive at the time of the global flood. But that is really conservative. Are you kidding me? Six children? People live five, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. Okay? But such a low estimation. Let's take it again. If the average family size were eight, let's kick it up to eight instead of six and the generation was only 93 instead of 100 years, then the population at the death of Adam at 930 years from creation would have been 
2.8 million. Well, that's a little bit better. But at that rate, the population at the time of the flood would have been 137 billion people. Now that now we're talking. Now we're talking, right? 137 billion people. Now this is not some wingnut that's making this prediction. This is Henry Morris from Biblical Cosmology and Modern Science. He's a creation scientist and he's thought through these things. Our present population is approximately 8 billion persons and certain people think that's way too many people so we need to depopulate if you're reading any contemporary issues today. So we have things like pandemics and different things to take out more and more people. You might be thinking that this could never be 137 billion people. What, are they standing like this with each other, you know, next to each other? Well, you need to consider something. Before the flood, the earth was not covered by 70% of water. Before the flood, there weren't vast arid regions where people can't live or vast freezing regions where people couldn't live. It was kind of a uniform climate. It was very different before the flood. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. What was the earth like before the flood? This was the creation, the original creation. Now granted, it's not the Garden of Eden, but it is the original creation that was before the flood. There were many breathtaking sights. And even today, we can see many breathtaking sights. I mean... Those of you that love the outdoors and go into the woods and see mountains and see glaciers and, and hike and, and, and see the, the national parks that we have here, still, even with the curse, right, we just marvel at the glory of God's creation. What must it have been like before the flood, which was a cataclysmic event? Try to imagine the earth before the flood. And though it was under the curse, it's true, it was still must have been a, a beautiful and magnificent display of God's creation, even more so than now, post-flood. The effects of the flood upon the earth has left it worse, not better, than it was before the flood. And before the flood, there would have been trees with abundant fruit, and mountains would have been high, but not jagged and dangerous as they are in our post-flood world. There would have been majestic rolling edifices covered with rich topsoil. There would have been no extreme cold or extreme heat, no catastrophic weather events, no hurricanes, cyclones, or tornadoes. The world before the flood would have had a uh, vast, would not have had vast deserts plagued by dust storms. Earth was watered by mists that came up from the surface, a divine sprinkler system. Okay? And it must have been an amazing and wonderful biosphere, very, very different from our post-flood world. As mentioned before, over 70% of the earth is now covered by water and therefore uninhabitable. There are huge areas on earth that are not suitable for people to live there because it's too cold or it's a desert. And the earth is plagued with horrific natural upheavals, earthquakes, tsunamis, and destructive hurricanes. Massive flooding. We're hearing about that, aren't we? But it was not always like that. It was not like this before the flood. But after the flood, everything changed. Everything changed. 
And if you look into some of those resources that I told you about, you will, you will hear these scientists describe the cataclysmic event of the flood and how it completely altered the face of our earth. There are countless stories about Noah and the flood that fill our contemporary culture. Mostly entertaining, but not very accurate. From the comedian and his jokes to the misinformed scientist declaring fairy tales about Noah and the flood, Noah and the flood are at least acknowledged. It reminds me of Captain Jack Sparrow. At least you do know that I'm Captain Jack Sparrow, right? It's taken from a movie, in case you didn't see that movie. In fact, the Syrian, Sumerian, Greek, Babylonian, Chinese, Persian, and even Estonian, Irish, the American Indian, Toltec, and Chululu cultures, their creation stories all include a variant of the flood story. In the American Indian traditions, the flood causes a universal destruction. Why? Because the world grew extremely sinful. That's in American Indian culture stories. One scientist a scientific writer, recorded that the great flood with variants of the biblical account and the universal flood is part of the mythology and legend of almost every culture on earth. Why is that? If this is just a myth, why do all the cultures in the world have the same myth? Now granted, they don't all agree, and they surely don't all line up with the great flood story in Genesis 6 through 9. But they do have accounts of a flood. In a study of over 200 um, creation myths okay, in these cultures, John Morris, another creation scientist, found similarities shown in this way. The event, the catastrophic flood, 95% of these 200 cultures that he studied had an account of a catastrophic flood. Was it global? 95% of these cultures, who they're not referring to the Bible. It's just part of their history and their myths. 95% said it was global. In those 200 cultures, there was a family, a favored family that was saved. Oh, it drops down to 88%. Of unchristian, secular cultures in the world that have this story. Was a rainbow mentioned? Yep. That took place in 75% of the cultures. Did animals play a part? Yep, 73% of the cultures. Was survival due to a boat? 70% had a story of a boat. Were animals also saved? 67% included that in the stories. Was a flood due to wickedness of mankind? 66%. Were they forewarned? 66%. Did survivors land on a mountain? 57%. This is incredible, people. This is not from the Bible. This is just cultures. Did survivors offer a sacrifice? Only 13% talked about that. Were birds sent out? 35%. And were, specifically, were there specifically eight persons saved? A walloping 9% of these 200 cultures actually had eight persons as part of that story. So, to say that the world doesn't know about a flood is just not true. It's what they know about the flood that matters, and that's why we're studying about this flood. 
Turn now to Matthew 24, uh, 37 and verses uh, 37 through 39. I'd just like to read that to you. Matthew 24. And we'll start in verse 37. For the coming of man, the coming of the Son of Man, will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Understanding what the days of Noah were like is a very relevant and important topic for us to understand who are at the end of the age. Because Jesus said his coming would be just like the days of Noah. And what were those days like? Well, the people were absorbed in everyday life. The picture provided by Jesus regarding the predominant mindset of the people in the days of Noah was a a picture of complete absorption in the affairs of their own lives. Unlike today. (laughs) We're not like that today. I mean, we're really serious about philosophy and and mathematics and science and, and, and the Bible. Not. Not even close to the degree that they were consumed by their own affairs and in direct proportion, they were disinterested in God and his plans. So much so that even though Noah, a preacher of righteousness, preached righteousness to them for 120 years, they were shocked when the flood came. And I'm sure he was warning them of that. They were eating and drinking. This makes up the normal routine of life on earth, no matter the culture. A perfect way to describe what a normal life would be is to say people are pretty much engaged in eating and drinking. Life goes on. Life went on like nothing was changing, like nothing was wrong. They paid absolutely no attention to that strange man building a big boat inland and who preached of a strange message about judgment. Many, don't, uh, many believe that rain had not yet fallen on the earth because the earth was watered by that mist. And so he's talking about a huge rainstorm. What is rain? And that's going to flood the entire planet. What? What? I suspect that the longer that they saw Noah building the ark, maybe, maybe 50 to 60 years, the more they got used to it and ignored it. Kind of like the gospel message that comes at us from every which way, on radio, TV. Man, there's been some great commercials on TV lately. Just sharing the gospel. Anybody see Sid Roth, the Jewish man that talks about, it is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Amazing. Everywhere present. When something first breaks, people talk about it. They protest it, they protest it right? They, they write negative things about it and complain about it. And I'm sure if there were papers at that time, there would be front page news. Crazy man builds big ark. And it was, it was big news, but 50, 60 years passed, and it's like old news. I'm sure the news cycle wasn't quite as rapid as ours now, but I'm sure it got old 
after a while just becomes normal. And people go on in their ways. They were marrying and giving in marriage. What's more common than the ritual of marriage being carried out even in the most bleak of days? I had the privilege of going over to Russia many times after Russia was no longer the the great superpower that it once was and and seeing the way people lived. Many of the pastors um, living in cities like Samara, the third largest city, in houses right next to each other, on their sidewalks, alongside their sidewalks, they had a little bit of dirt that they used to plant flowers in. Well, they planted potatoes in because they needed to live. And, you know, things happen and people just kind of tighten their belts. But even during those days, people are getting married and giving their daughters in marriage and people are having children, right? Life goes on. We've already identified that knowledge and technology during this period of time from Adam being cast out of the garden all the way up into these days, that technology and knowledge rapidly increased. And they had 1,500 years at least, and mankind built cities. You see that in Genesis 4.17. There were cities, and they had developed husbandry and livestock interests, 4.20. And they composed and played musical instruments. There is culture, people. You know, you hear because of uh, evolution, you know, they were Neanderthal men. (laughs) It's kind of like tribal people where because they're primitive, they have primitive languages that are simple. (laughs) Give me a break. As one that studied a language that wasn't even that complex, it was not simple. And then you have other languages that are tonal. And just because a tribal group of people may be simple in the way that they live compared to our scientific developed communities and so forth. There's nothing simple about them, and their cultures are well intact. Well, the people of Adam's time, leading up to Noah, they had instruments. They created instruments, and they played music, and they discovered metallurgy, including how to make alloys such as brass. You see that in Genesis 4.22. This was a highly developed, highly developed culture. No, no cavemen mentality here. But even as the line of Cain excelled in all the above technologies, they also spiraled downward morally. It's like culturally they're zooming up ahead. Morally they're just going down. Cain killed his brother. Lamech not only practiced polygamy, taking two wives, but he also proudly boasted of killing a boy for 23 and 24. And Genesis 6, 11 explains that the earth in the days of Noah was filled with violence. I don't know. Is there any violence in our cultures today? You know, we were singing songs. I can't help when we sing songs and, and we're talking about... Um, the old saints that Tracy is so good to, to bring us um, lyrics from, from people from bygone ages. And they had a better grip on God and the presence of God. And they were more stressed and more troubled. And they, they cling to God in a more real way. But what I always do is I translate that into our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. Right? that are being bombarded. Um, 
Not military installations, theaters, schools, and over in Israel. And, and I won't even go into Africa. But think of the brothers and sisters there. They're, they're, they're in Christ as well, but the righteous suffer with the unrighteous. And violence is everywhere present. And we see it just everywhere exploding in our own nation, our own city. So it's everywhere present. And even as it was in the days of Noah, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. People were fully overrun with sinful behavior in the days of Noah. God saw man's actions, and and God saw man's motives. According to Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart that's the motives, was only evil, only evil, continually. You see, their wickedness was exposed before God because we read the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great. And we know that it was human in origin because it says, of man, the wickedness of man. And we know that it was universal in scope because it was great on the earth. And it was dominating the motives of the the people because it was every intent. And it was rooted in their heart and mind because it was in the thoughts of their hearts. And it was unending in number because it was only evil continually. We think we got it bad now. It's going to get worse. God's final analysis of human sinfulness. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And, and God looked on the earth, and, and behold, all flesh had corrupted their way. Genesis 6 11 and 12. This staggering analysis of the human condition came from the perspective of an all holy and a completely righteous God. In the eyes of the Creator, as He looked at the generation of Noah, humanity was corrupt. And this word carries a very interesting and a very intense meaning with it. It means it was marred or contaminated. Another meaning of the word corrupt is that it was spoiled, like fruit no longer useful in its, as its original intention was. I, today I just, or yesterday, I just cleaned out where we stash all of our, we have cucumbers and fruit and and tomatoes and things, and some on the bottom had started to rot, and of course that catches on. And by the time I got down to the bottom, they're just squishy, you know. That's what humanity became like, corrupt. You're not going to eat a tomato like that or a cucumber that's just squishy, right, with mold growing on it. You might say, what happened? How come you didn't see that happening? I was busy doing other things. I was eating and drinking and giving in marriage and... Taken up by life. So mankind, through sin, had become spoiled and had become an adulteration of God's original created state for them. They were created to give glory back to God, to reflect His glory back to Him. And this is the way they turned out. The book of Psalms describes the sinfulness of man and leads to their corruption in this way. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God, they are corrupt. They're corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. 
And there is no one that does good. The Lord looked down from heaven. There he is looking again upon the sons of man to see if there are any who understand or who seek after God. And they have all turned aside and together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The Bible has now identified the sinfulness of man and God's observance of it reaching a climatic proportion on earth in the days of Noah. And he, Jesus said that right before he comes back, the earth will be like the days of Noah. His evaluation was scathing, offered little hope because humanity was completely corrupt. Wickedness was great. Every intent, only evil continually. Therefore, God judged the earth and her inhabitants. Now, in our, in our day, is it like the days of Noah? Is the second coming of Jesus Christ close, as he prophesied? You bet. You bet it's close. For people who live in a culture that approves of sin, the severity of God's indictment against humanity by the creator God and his response to their sin is really difficult for them to grasp. Because they're living without God and without hope in the world, but they won't turn to God. Particularly people who believe in the essential goodness of mankind, which is what we, people are basically good. <laughs> Go to Chicago. Go to Philadelphia. Go to Minneapolis. They'll tend to go on with their everyday lives, oblivious of what is about to befall them, just as it was in the days of Noah. However, the standards of God, not man, are bedrock to the understanding of truth. Held in contrast to the infinite and incomprehensible moral perfection of God, perceived human goodness, everybody's good, fades to less than nothing. It's a zero with the rim knocked off of it to think that mankind is good. That's not what the Bible says. So the guilty verdict remains, and mankind has been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, for which they were created. Now in Genesis 6, we read, The Lord saw that every intention of the heart and the thoughts was evil continually. Not only does God see our outward actions, but he sees our innermost thoughts God is all-seeing and all-knowing. 2 Chronicles 16.9. Take this verse down. 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord run, excuse me, run to and fro throughout the whole earth. He sees everything. Okay? Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And if that's not enough, Hebrews 4.13 sums it up by saying, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. They're naked and open. There is no hiding. And that's not just our behavior. It's the thoughts of our mind and the intents of our heart. Only God can rightly and fully discern our thoughts and desires and motives Judges and juries can't. That's why they make mistakes. Your pastor can't. Even your spouse can't, even though she may come very close. 
But God can, and he does see right into your heart. And what God saw in the, in, in the hearts of men in Noah's day, before the flood, was a deep grief to him. And so he pronounced judgment. But there is hope. Even in this account, there is hope. God never gives us an unbalanced view of things. And the hope is the ark. It was the only escape from the wrath of God, as is Jesus Christ today, of which the ark was a type. People's only hope to escape the wrath of God today is Jesus Christ. He's our ark. And because Noah's ark is a type of Christ, in the same way that God saved Noah's family who entered the ark from the judgment of flood, God now saves all who are in Christ. The new ark, if you will. All outside of Christ will experience God's eternal wrath. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 says this, After they were disobedient long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed, in the ark a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. Then it goes on to say something that confuses many people. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When verse 21 says prefigures baptism, the word prefigured can also be translated as a type. It's a type. The ark which saved Noah's family from judgment through water prefigures a future baptism. It's a type. And when I say baptism, you have to realize that the word baptism is a transliteration from the Greek word baptizo. Baptizo simply means taking something and immersing it into something else, placing it into something else. It was used to take linen, which is kind of a cream color, and placing it into a vat of dye to dye the cloth, that you baptizoed the cloth. So, what baptism basically means is being placed into something. So how does that sit with water baptism? Well, that's why we believe in immersion. Baptism by immersion and not sprinkling. Okay? If you had a piece of linen and you went like this with the dye, you'd have to do it an awful lot in order to get the whole thing dyed, right? But they baptized it. They put it into something. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for our eternal salvation and forgiveness of all of our sins, a spiritual transaction takes place where the Holy Spirit takes us and places us into the body of Jesus Christ. It's spiritual. So when we're baptized with water baptism, where we're immersed into the water, we're reenacting what actually took place spiritually in our heart. When he places us under the water, that's like Christ going into the grave. And when he comes up, That's the resurrection. And isn't that exactly what this verse says? Not the washing off, I mean, he even says it, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All who have that that good conscience towards God because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ are in Christ because they were baptized into Christ. You see, those who put their faith in Christ are baptized or placed into him, and a spiritual transaction includes being placed into his death, being placed into his resurrection. 
And this is what will save a person from God's future wrath. It's like getting on the school bus. It's just like I've talked to you so many times. That, that baptism that the Holy Spirit does to us, you get on the school bus. And if you're on the school bus, you're going to make it to school. Or it's like stepping onto the escalator. You get on the escalator, and you're sure you're on the escalator, you will be going up, and you will reach the top floor. Even though you decide to walk down a few steps when you sin and rebel against God and the truth of God, you are still moving forward, and you're going to get to heaven. That's called the perseverance of the saints. And every true believer will make it to heaven. Now, the rest won't. (laughs) I know that's abrupt, but it's true. Just like in Noah's day, eight, only eight people made it because they were in the ark. In the future, when Jesus comes back, the door is shut, and only those that are in Christ will make it, and the rest won't. Just as the world perished in the flood, Consider this most familiar verse of the Bible in this light of everything I've been telling you. Just listen to these words in a fresh way, okay? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Will not perish. What happened to all the people outside the ark? They perished. But those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, who the Father sent to save sinners, they will not perish, but they will have eternal life. So, just a simple question for you right now. Do you believe that? Or will you believe that and have eternal life? Or will you perish with the rest? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this great book of Genesis and all the truth in this book, Lord, it just staggers the imagination that something so old could be so relevant and pertinent to today. We pray, God, that you'd grip our hearts with these truths. And Lord, if there be anyone here that has not yet believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for their eternal forgiveness of their sins and eternal life, Lord, let them make that decision Right now, right today, let them just call out to you that they want to be in the new ark, Jesus Christ, to escape the wrath of God that is coming. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.